This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Sowen, co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive, a nonprofit with a mission to help people see what works in addressing climate change and related issues like energy, water, food, disaster risk reduction. Using the discipline of systems thinking, the team at Climate Interactive has partnered with major government policymakers, such as the U.S. State Department, to help them assess and communicate their strategies concerning climate change. Climate Interactive has similarly assisted numerous non-governmental organizations and businesses. The organization's critical work has been featured in the New York Times, Live Science, the Mother Nature Network, the Washington Post, and The Guardian, among many other publications. Beth has an undergraduate degree from Dartmouth and a PhD from MIT, both degrees in biology. She is a scientist, a teacher, a public speaker, and a passionate advocate for system transformation towards sustainability. She's also the author of numerous research papers and articles on climate change and system dynamics. I've really been looking forward to our conversation today, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. So before we jump into talking about Climate Interactive, I'd like to start by asking you to share a little bit of your personal journey and particularly uh, the bridge from biology to systems dynamics to your work today as a teacher and advocate in the climate change arena. A lot of people are out there studying science, I think, today and wondering, well, what exactly am I going to do with my uh, science education? And I think your story is just very compelling and interesting in that regard. So I wonder if you could share some of that with us. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I guess I was one of those kids who started out uh, just loving nature, playing in the woods and in streams. And so I was sort of naturally pulled to biology um, as an undergraduate. And then, as you said, I went on to MIT where I studied molecular genetics. I worked on a small soil nematode and I was trying to understand how the structure of its nervous system gave rise to its behavior. And it was fascinating work. I loved doing it. But I got to a point about three quarters of the way through my PhD where I realized there was only a handful of people in the whole world who really understood and and particularly cared very much about this fine detail that I was studying. And at the same time, I was becoming just more and more aware of the environmental problems that the planet was facing. And it just became harder and harder to picture myself continuing to do this sort of very fine detail work as much as I loved it. And so I was looking for a way to take my training as a scientist, but make a difference on problems like natural resource challenges and climate change. And uh, around that time, I got to know a professor at Dartmouth College. Uh, Her name was Danella Meadows, and she was Uh, the co-author of a really important book in 1972 called The Limits to Growth. And and so she came out of the research group at MIT that was led by Jay Forrester and also included Dennis Meadows and Jorgen Randers. And they had looked in 1972 at what, what was likely to happen as the human impact on the planet became closer and closer to the carrying capacity of the planet. 
And they really viewed that as a choice, that it wasn't predetermined what would happen, but there were going to be uh, some interesting choices required of human beings. And in 1972, of course, uh, that was looking off into the future. Today, we know that somewhere around 1988, if you look at the ecological footprint analysis, um, the human carrying capacity began to exceed the 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 human dependency on the earth began to exceed the carrying capacity. But back in 1972, that was something that we were approaching and, and we could have made choices to, to lower our human footprint before hitting that. Um, so, of course, many people were, were sort of awoken by that book, the book, The Limits to Growth. Um, it became a really important part of the environmental movement. But of course, the people of the world and the governments of the world didn't really heed that choice. Um, but Danella Meadows started a research group uh, at Dartmouth that continued to work on that issue for, for many years. And um, she, she founded in 1997, and about the time I was finishing my PhD from MIT, something called the Sustainability Institute, which was, uh, she called it a think-do tank. So it was both a, a, re a research and uh, theory-building organization, but it was also... Uh, meant to have real life applied experiments on the ground. And so she hired me um, along with a handful of other young people to become the first staff of that Sustainability Institute in 1997. I ended up working there for about 13 years um, until Climate Interactive outgrew that organization and became its own freestanding organization. But over the years, I worked on system dynamics modeling of things like commodity agriculture. Some of my colleagues worked on forests and fisheries. We ran a leadership program that was focused on um, training sustainability leaders around the world in systems thinking. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, a fascinating ride. The, the saddest part of it, uh, of course, is that Danella Meadows uh, died early on in the um, in the work of that institute mm. in two, 2001, um, very suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm. So where I thought that I would be, you know, learning from this bright guiding light in our field for for decades, I in the end only had ab about half a dozen years of working with her. But it definitely changed the the course of my research, the course of my life, how I think about these issues. Um, and so it was it was quite a fortunate thing for me. So some some fascinating things there. And I, I wanted to ask you just because I'm so interested in this about could, could you talk a little bit about the relationship between if to, as you understand it between the early environmental movement and the early work on systems dynamics. I mean, there's obviously like an overlap there and a bunch of people at MIT and then a bunch of people, though, also in the environmental sciences area. And I wonder if you have a perspective on how they perhaps influenced one another. Well, I think that one thing system dynamics did was it gave a way of understanding what was happening. It gave a narrative um, to a lot of the things that were happening in the 70s, like the oil crisis. Um, because it put it into a wider view. That's one thing system dynamics tends to do is it tends to take a long view, both of past trends and, and future possibilities. And, and so rather than just seeing isolated events, you know, an oil crisis here, a polluted river there, limits to growth put those things that were happening into a wider context that looked at the finite planet and an exponentially growing human population and human economy and just laid the question out in front of people, uh, you know, 
these two, th this trend of exponential growth can't continue forever in the face of a finite planet. And, and those authors ask the question, and what shall we do? Right. You know, and that's uh, the question the environmental movement in different ways has been trying to, to take up ever since. My, uh, my son in school, and I'm sure that your children, the same thing, uh, just recently read uh, Silent Spring. And just situating some of this in history, like Silent Spring, the date of that book is like late 60s. Am I right about that? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And then so, and uh, Donald Meadows' book comes out in the early 70s. Is that is that yep. correct? Yeah. So they really are sort of kindred spirits in this, in this uh, uh, founding of the environmental movement itself. And then, um, because I think a lot of people think of, you know, Silent Spring as sort of the, the start of that whole uh, consciousness about the environment. And then I wanted to ask you this, because I think many of our listeners may have heard the word systems dynamics or systems thinking. But in my experience, and I think your experience, too, as educators, sometimes people are very not clear about what what really is the referent of these terms. And, um, and they sometimes there's a lot of different ideas in people's head when they say systems and systems thinking. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what systems thinking means to you specifically. I know it's something that you really apply quite rigorously in your work. So what is the content there for you when we talk about system dynamics and systems thinking? Yeah, great question. We think of a system as an interconnected set of elements whose interconnections actually create their own behavior. Uh, so it's not enough to have just a set of elements. So a pile of sand on the beach, we wouldn't think of that as a system, even though there are all these particles of sand. They aren't um, in any very interesting way influencing each other. But a forest is a system composed of soil and microbes and, and plants and trees and the atmosphere and rainfall. Um, and each of those elements is interconnected to the other elements and a change in one set of the elements, say a, a change in the rainfall will influence the trees and will influence the soil. But also a change in the trees actually will influence the formation of clouds. So often there's uh, what we call circular interconnection or feedback is another hallmark of systems. Um, and the really fascinating thing for me about systems, and the thing that, that is really a revolutionary idea in some ways, is that the, the structure or the interconnection of systems creates their own behavior. Uh, and so when we're facing behaviors that nobody wants, like climate change or poverty or public health crisis, uh, systems thinking teaches you to look at what is it about those interconnections? What, about, what is it about the structure of the system that's creating that behavior no one wants? And it really turns your attention towards perverse system incentives, towards either rules or habits or ways of thinking that create the behavior people don't want to see, rather than um, what is maybe a more common response is to look for the bad guy, the person whose fault it is. Um, a systems thinking tends to be more productive because it gets you away from thinking about, uh, you know, defective, short-sighted, greedy people. Um, and thinking instead about good people trying to do their best within systems that aren't set up necessarily for the common good or for the long-term well-being of the whole. So this is a really critical point and I think something very powerful about your use of systems thinking as a tool for advocacy and learning. Um, before I go there, though, I want to just spend a, just a, maybe a minute or two more just talking a little bit about um, – systems thinking as a discipline and you know you so you had did your PhD 
at MIT, and and obviously you're steeped in this in this material. And and uh, we I will say for our listeners that you know Beth and I also had the fun of working together recently at an Ashoka conference where we trained uh, did a very elemental training in system dynamics for some of the participants there. And one of the things we were reflecting on in our conversation is the way that people learn about systems analysis today. And and um, so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how you see this community of people doing systems thinking. I, I think, uh, you know, from my own perspective, there's a lot of very rich content, very rich tools, very rich ideas that are being uh, now uh, promoted and, and better understood uh, in the education system and in policy. Could you talk a little bit about that systems dynamics as a movement in a way of approaching, just to give our, our listeners some sense of the contours of that? Um, well, I know I that's think, a big question. Yeah, it, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. about what angle to approach it from. But what, what I would say is that, uh, you know, and, and, and you mentioned social entrepreneurship as well a while ago. Um, we're, as we come to the, to the edges of the Earth's carrying capacity for human beings, as we face these problem, interconnected problems of poverty and climate change uh, and the need for a lot of the world to develop while other parts of the world are um, consuming really more than their fair share of the Earth's resources, I think people who are trying to make a dent in those problems are pretty quickly brought up against the limits of old ways of approaching things, uh, where you try to sort of draw boundaries around one part of the problem and decide to take a very sort of linear focused approach and you're going to solve that problem. Because you people get into that and then what they start to discover is how that problem is connected to so many other problems. And that that frustration, I think, is what leads people towards systems thinking. Uh, definitely, the organizations that hire us to do computer modeling, which is something we can talk about more, but one approach to systems thinking is to actually embody the relationships in a system in a mathematical model. Um, the clients who come to us with questions like that, they generally are seeing the need to bridge from economics to the biogeochemistry of the planet to uh, culture and values and uh, the ways that people think and to try to, to um, not just take one of those tacks, but bring them all together in one coherent whole. Uh, so that's one thing that just over the course of my career, I've seen more and more demand for. Um, and now it's it's quite interesting to see uh, in the field of climate change adaptation, um, where, uh, for example, cities are looking out 10, 20, 30 years and realizing they're going to be facing, you know, problems, either sea level rise or increased frequency of extreme events or storms or floods. But really trying to look at that uh, not as an isolated problem, but to also say, and how can we solve, um, you know, our need for jobs for young people while we're addressing climate change? Or how can we um, embed increased energy efficiency into our adaptation initiatives so that we're both preparing for climate change we can't prevent, and we're also um, preventing future climate change and providing opportunities for economic development at the same time? And so, you know, while we're facing some very challenging issues that I don't want to minimize at all, I'm also sensing this sort of rising excitement at the possibility of big new ideas that tackle multiple problems at the same time. Because one thing systems thinking teaches is 
not only are problems interconnected, but often solutions are interconnected as well. And I, and so I see a growing hunger to to really find those smart strategic interventions that that solve multiple problems at the same time. So so systems thinking and system dynamics is a is a discipline that can be applied to a, a broad range of of problems. And one of the things that you do in Climate Interactive is really use these tools which have a broader act applicability, but then use them specifically to think about the uh, challenges that uh, humans are facing in the arena of climate change. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, you definitely do. And uh, well, just one thing I'd add is, you know, this skill set of system dynamics, as I said, was developed at MIT and Jay Forrester's group in the 60s and was really applied to these large global social problems as one of its first applications. Um, and over the years, there have been many people trained in this methodology, but actually it's gotten probably more traction um, in, in consulting to businesses. Uh, you know, so there's lots of system dynamics work on things like quality control in a production line or uh, you know, building trust and goodwill within a team. There's lots of system dynamics effort applied there. Um, and, and definitely some really great work on the social environmental side as well. But, but what seems to be kind of building up in the last decade is, is sort of a growth in that sphere, which I think is really uh, exciting and important. Right, right. So I, I, I'd like to point you then at this, this um, I think the way you characterized it was you said that uh, Climate inter- Interactive actually grew out of the Sustainability Institute. And um, I think what's really intriguing, one of the things that's very intriguing about your work, very important about your work, is this approach to advocacy, if I can put it this way. And you tell me if I'm tracking this right, but that uh, you're really looking at experiential learning and looking at the context and setting for learning as one of the biggest levers in advocacy, which I think is a, a fascinating concept. And so I'd like you to talk about that. But if you could maybe put it in the context of telling the story about how you grew Climate Interactive out of the Sustainability Institute. Yeah. Well, one thing that we often talk about as part of our mission is being advocates for the question. Right. Um, so one of our teachers and, and colleagues, Peter Senge, teaches uh, that an attitude that, that really rises out of systems thinking is being totally committed and totally uncertain is how Peter puts it. And I think what he means by that is putting 100% of your effort into addressing whatever problem you're looking at, but always holding open the possibility that you might be wrong, that there might be more information, there might be something you're not seeing, and that with more information, you might have to change course. And that, um, in my experience of working with systems thinkers, that's not just lip service. That really is how people steeped in systems thinking show up. And, and I think they show up that way because you engage enough with the complexity of systems and you, you're really forced to just see the edges of your own understanding and the way in which our mental models often don't represent the world very well, where the complexity of systems just really baffles our, our human intuition. Right. So um, we, we tend not to think of ourselves as advocates. Often uh, the work that we do is, is used by advocates on one side of an issue or another. And, uh, you know, we're always extremely happy when 
we're able to simplify the complexity of a system and then and allow, you know, an NGO focused on the youth voice and the climate movement to really underscore their point, um, something like that. But we, uh, we we actually really stress when we're hired by a client that there's no guarantee we're going to come up with the answer that they want to hear, that we're in that way, I guess we're sort of true to the scientific method and, and open to where our research takes us. But always we're trying to extend the time horizon. So for example, in our climate model that was used a lot in the UN negotiations around the time of Copenhagen, um, that model has a hundred year time horizon. So what we were doing was reflecting back to decision makers, uh, the actions they were saying their governments were willing to take on climate change. And then we were playing those actions out for a hundred years and, and just letting them see whether those actions added up to meeting the climate goals that they'd already committed themselves to. And uh, unfortunately, in that case, the answer was that they didn't. They, the, the pledges and goals on the table got about two thirds of the way towards um, the goal that the climate negotiators set out for themselves, which was to limit temperature increase to two degrees over pre-industrial temperatures. Mm. Um, and our, our research, and then it was confirmed by other groups, showed that, that uh, there was insufficient action being pledged to, to accomplish that goal. But that's a pretty good example of how system dynamics, which is just a computer model of a system, uh, can be helpful. As soon as you get these interacting feedback loops and long time delays, which are, are both characteristics of the climate system, uh, it's, it's basically impossible for people to add up um, you know, their actions and then take into account how the Earth system is going to respond to those actions and understand what the long-term consequences will be. So one of our real missions, and I think we've had good success at this, is, is lengthening the time horizon of decisions. So really getting people to take the long view and, and see uh, what it's going to take to accomplish their goals and examine some of the complexity and maybe even some of the ways that the system pushes back against what seem like they might be successful strategies. All these things are part of that process, I guess. Yeah, very much. And you know, climate change is a good example of a number of, of problems we're facing today where um, the changes are so potentially devastating and so irreversible on any human timescale that you really can't wait and see what's going to happen and then decide if it's acceptable or not and then, and then change course. You know, we manage to navigate a lot of our you know, problems in our individual lives or even problems at the scale of a, of a business or organization. We try something, we see if we like it. If we don't like it, we change. But climate change doesn't give us that luxury. And so uh, one important role of, of, of system dynamic simulations is to play out the future before it happens and to allow people to really quickly experience a whole range of different scenarios and see what is it going to take to, to keep climate within livable bounds, for example. Um, and sometimes we do that by putting a decision maker in front of a laptop and they get to you know, control the simulation and, and experiment for half an hour and, and, and learn what the path to climate success looks like. Uh, sometimes we set up learning experiences. Like, so one example of that is a, um, a mock negotiation where people play the roles of different parties to the UN climate treaty process and they, they make pledges and then we use the computer simulation to show them what the pledges would create in the real world. And then they go through another round of negotiation and they, they're holding you know, 
know, the different positions of China that needs to continue to develop and the U.S. that has to transform a dirty energy system into a clean one. And so they're, they're on the one hand, they're holding the sort of individual positions that the real negotiators hold, but at the same time, they're trying to accomplish this global goal. And what the simulation does is provide that layer of realism for them to see if they're really able to achieve their goals or not. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Dr. Elizabeth Sawin, co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive. So what's interesting about this, and I think I really want to drill into this point because I think um, this is something in which the work that you're doing is just so unique. And that is that, you know, many organizations out there that are grappling with these kinds of problems today, you know, they, they quickly fall into just trying to shout louder or longer than others and something you referred to before, you know, they demonize their opponents and, and um, well, they, they, they actually create opponents and then demonize them and, and you know, the work becomes really uh, steeped in the metaphors of war and battle, which probably is counterproductive to, to progress. And what we see in your work is an effort to create a community of people who are thinking together deeply about something, exploring it experientially, and then sort of learning from the truth of that reality, if I've said that right. And so I wonder if you could just share maybe a couple of stories about, or just your, your own feelings and intuitions about how that works in the real world. Is that a way for people to gain is that a better way for people to gain insights into what's happening than the sort of abstract policy argument and combat that we often see in this space today? Well, we certainly believe that it, that it is, and that's why we put as much effort as we do into creating spaces where people can learn and more and more um, where we design technologies, particularly the interfaces to our simulations that are focused on um, helping people learn. And we have a few principles, I guess, that we've learned over the years about that. Um, and one is that uh, there's a difference between being told something and discovering it for yourself. Right. And when that comes to climate change, you know, I think we're inundated these days with reports and scientists trying to communicate the, you know, the results of their, of their studies as though there's a deficit in information of information. If we could just provide more information, then people would understand the urgency and act. Um, we don't really see a lot of evidence for that theory. And instead, what we really see evidence for is uh, people needing the space and the time to learn something for themselves and that that's the kind of learning that stays with people and motivates them 
Um, and I'm thinking, you know, one example was uh, a, a young college student who participated in this mock negotiation I was just telling you about and uh, told us afterwards that that was the first time he really understood the urgency and the magnitude of the problem. Right. Um, and then that led him to a number of different actions. And at this point, he's, you know, the president of an organization on his campus focused on climate change. And it's changing uh, what he's thinking about studying in graduate school. So, you know, it's examples like that where you see one person report back to you about how that just led to some significant changes in their life and where they're investing their time, um, where you start to feel the difference between just one more report uh, and, and this more learning-oriented, experiential-based uh, uh, approach. And so let's get specific about this because this is really tremendous innovation going on here at Climate Interactive in terms of real tools and resources. And I know one of the things that you've done is really create a, a series of simulators which uh, create this learning environment where people can sort of play with the variables and see what the scenarios look like when there are different inputs. And I wonder if you could just quickly talk us through them. I guess, should we begin with Sea Roads? Is that, is that one of the primary vehicles? Yeah, I think Sea Roads is a good example um, of the approach we take. So Sea Roads is a model or a simulation of the global climate. So it means that uh, at the base, um, the model is a series of mathematical equations that represent things like CO2 in the atmosphere and how that increases as a result of emissions and how the uptake by the biosphere of carbon reduces CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, so for CO2 and all the other greenhouse gases, there's, there's very careful tracking of all of those interactions. Uh, and then there's very careful tracking of the, con the effect of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere on things like the global temperature over the next hundred years or the um, amount of sea level rise over the next hundred years. But uh, at, while all of those equations are uh, open and available for anyone who wants to look at them, most people tend to gravitate toward what we call the interface. So you can sort of think of it as the top layer of the simulation which is giving you as a user choices about different policies that we might take. Uh, so the U.S. has a pledge to reduce its emissions 17% um, by 2020. So you can, on the interface, uh, input that policy and see what impact that would have if the U.S. fulfilled its pledge um, on global temperature or sea level rise. And what you see actually is a very tiny little wedge of improvement because over the next 100 years, the U.S. alone is only one small contributor to the overall um, future greenhouse gas emissions. Then you might ask, well, what if India uh, implemented a pledge um, that you could set? Or what if Brazil and China did the following? And so it allows for very flexible what-if testing uh, to build someone's intuition about how much change is required to meet a climate goal, to limit sea level rise or to limit temperature increase to a certain amount. Um, well, I was just going to add one, one interesting thing about Sea Roads is that now we've turned it into, I think the last count was uh, 11 different forms. So there's a very uh, sophisticated form that's used by uh, climate negotiators, for instance, people in the U.S. State Department um, to, to do very precise testing. There's an online form that's used by um, hundreds of high school and college teachers around the country. There's a form that runs on an iPhone. There's another form 
that uh, only shows a few scenarios but gives you a very quick picture. And so one thing that we've learned is that uh, to really have impact with one of these simulations, it's, it's usually best to take the core simulation and translate it into lots of different forms for different, either asking different questions or for different audiences. So you've got a model that then drives a bunch of front ends in which people use the front end of the model in different ways to explore different elements of the model and hopefully use that front end to really begin to understand some of the true underlying system dynamics. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, and then tell me about is climate scoreboard one of those front ends that you have developed? Yeah, and that's the that's a, the climate scoreboard is a really good example of uh, taking one large model and using it to answer one very specific question. And that question is, if all the countries in the world lived up to the pledges they've made to the UN on climate, what would that mean for the global temperature at the end of the century? And that um, is, we created it as an embeddable widget, which means it's something that can be put onto a blog or a Facebook page. When we update our analysis as different countries change their pledges, uh, wherever someone's embedded that widget, it will automatically update. And unfortunately, what it shows right now is a pretty big gap remaining between that two degree goal and uh, where the current pledges are headed. And that's been unfortunately a pretty static situation for the last couple of years as uh, countries haven't stepped forward with more ambitious pledges. And there's, there's hope that in 2014, 2015, there's another window where there's another opportunity internationally for, for more ambitious pledges. And so we'll be hopefully updating that scoreboard and reflecting a better picture over time. Now, how about um, En-ROADS and C-LEARN? Can you tell us about those yep. two? Maybe C-LEARN first because uh, C-LEARN is connected to C-ROADS. It's actually the simplified online version of C-ROADS. So it has all the underlying math of C-ROADS. Uh, it allows you to look at just three groups of countries rather than uh, C-ROADS. You can look at 15 different groups of countries. And C-LEARN is... Um, freely available on the web. So it's a, um, it's a, it sits on a server in California and a teacher in a classroom in Connecticut could, uh, you know, lead her class through what these what if tests. What if the developed world reduced their emissions immediately? What if China and India and Brazil reduced their emissions in 2020? Uh, and the model really quickly calculates the result and then you can see outputs like temperature increase or sea level rise. Um, so that's that's C-Learn, and I should say that all of these different tools are uh, all available online on our website, which is climateinteractive.org. And then you asked about En-ROADS. Um, so En-ROADS is, is really our latest work in progress in this area, and it includes everything in C-ROADS, so it has a representation of the global climate system. But it looks at the fact that if we're going to address climate change, in the end, what, what is going to need to happen is a transformation of the world's energy system. So it's not really just a matter of politicians uh, and negotiators in the UN making pledges to reduce emissions. In the end, it's, it's changing power plants and it's building solar instead of coal plants and it's insulating buildings and uh, increasing public transportation. So En-ROADS represents a lot of those energy choices about where we invest uh, in new technologies and uh, where we can invest in energy efficiency, what the impacts of internalizing the cost of carbon might be. So there's policies about things like a carbon price. 
uh, like C-ROADS, it's a global model. So it, it treats the energy system as a, a global system. And it's really meant to improve people's intuition about the energy system. Because one thing that we've, we've found is that people across the spectrum from uh, you know, high-level decision makers to ordinary citizens tend to underestimate uh, how hard it is and how long it will take to transform an energy system. People tend to think it's something that can happen quickly, but, but these are very long-lived infrastructures, and so they're very, very slow to shift. Um, uh, uh, people also tend to think that there's one often sort of magic bullet that's going to transform our energy system and everyone has their favorite new technology. You know, it will be cold fusion or it will be solar or all we need is energy efficiency. And when you look deeply in the issue and, and start to create a rigorous model like En-ROADS, what you see is that uh, it's really not a silver bullet, but it's, it's very deliberate effort uh, spread across both energy supply and energy demand, and um, it's a it's a whole palette of new types of technologies, not just one magic technology. So En-ROADS has our work with En-ROADS has some missions that are really just about educating about the transformation and what needs to be happening now, or so that over the next really decades, uh, the global energy system gets cleaner and cleaner and more and more efficient. So one of the things I know that you're doing is looking at some of the system dynamics in this area, and I, I noted something really interesting, I think, that you were working on in looking at uh, the sort of counterintuitive impact of having very plentiful and cheap natural gas. And this is something we see in my part of the world, but I think also across the country, it's a phenomenon that you have fracking, you have, we've sort of discovered very recently that we're sitting on top of this huge natural gas reserve. And yet that has some unintended consequences for long-term uh, CO2 emission reduction, if I, if I understand some of the work that you're doing there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, many people um, are very hopeful about the the boom in gas, and it, on the surface, it, it it's logical because uh, for one unit of energy, gas does produce a lot less CO2 than a fuel like coal. So people say it's less carbon dense, um, and so all else being equal, if you can replace some coal with some gas, you'd expect that greenhouse gas emissions would go down, and that to some extent is true. Um, but this is where the complexity of systems starts to be really important to think about because a few other things also happen. Um, if gas becomes really cheap, it doesn't only displace coal, it also competes with renewable energy, the types of energy that we know we need to grow over the long term. Um, and, and to the extent that it prevents new development of technologies like wind and solar, um, it slows their, what we talk about is their learning curve. So all these new technologies become less and less expensive with every doubling of installed capacity. And so if gas, a boom in gas is slowing down that um, learning process for renewables, it actually is, is starting to inhibit this transition to a really low carbon economy and leave us, leaves us locked into sort of a mid-carbon economy. 
Um, so that's one, one counterintuitive effect about gas. Another one is just the fact that uh, as energy becomes more cheap, there's this natural effect for people to use more of it and to invest less in energy efficiency. And so that's another way where a gas boom um, tends to be counterproductive to the long-term goal of, of creating a low-carbon economy and creating a very energy-efficient economy. So this is also connected, I think, with something that you spend a lot of time working on, which is this idea about connecting adaptation to mitigation. So if I uh, help me, let me see if I can articulate this and then you'll know you've done a good job teaching people about it. But it's basically the idea, if I have it right, that, you know, we're faced with a lot of challenges from climate change. So we do we have some short term things that we do to try to adapt um, to adapt to these crises, which I guess you could look at, you know, natural gas as being one adaptation to energy uh, dependence on oil and things like that. But uh, we need also to be taking long range steps to reduce CO2 emissions that are going to really be sort of go to the root cause of some of our climate change issues. And I think one of the things that you are really uh, writing about and teaching about is how we could be connecting these things. So making sure that the adaptations we undertake also go to do work that gets to the root cause of our uh, climate change issues. Have I have I said that right? Yeah, yeah, you definitely have, and and we think this is really important. Um, you know, the most important point for all of us to remember is that uh, without reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to create a world that we really can't adapt to. The extremes will be so extreme um, that we'll likely bankrupt ourselves trying to protect ourselves from, you know, massive amounts of sea level rise and uh, droughts in parts of the country and floods in other parts of the country. Uh, so that even as we're facing more and more extreme events from climate change that's already underway, we really can't take our eyes off the prize of this long-term transition to a low carbon uh, economy, because that's really uh, what we have to do to make any adaptation possible. Um, but we're reaching this new territory where I believe we have to more and more do both at once. We have to protect the most vulnerable people uh, from the effects of climate change that we can't prevent while keeping going and working harder than ever on um, the transition to a low carbon economy. And so that makes to me really interesting these possibilities where uh, people are finding ways to do both at once. And maybe just a couple examples um, make make that potential more clear. So one um, one example is we're doing some work with the city of Milwaukee, where they're focusing on their stormwater uh, and flooding from stormwater, which they expect to be a bigger problem with climate change just because of more extreme rainfall. Uh, in order to get ready for this, one thing Milwaukee is investing in they call green infrastructure. And this is a whole collection of measures like green roofs, um, replacing blacktop with permeable surfaces so water can percolate into the soil, uh, protecting land upstream of the city and keeping it in conservation so that natural wetlands can absorb and slow stormwater and prevent flooding. Uh, but the, the fascinating thing is that uh, while they're doing this to adapt and to protect themselves against future climate change, they're also realizing it's going to save energy. And that's because uh, any water that they can 
can slow and have infiltrate soils doesn't end up inside their water processing infrastructure uh, where it takes a lot of energy to be pumped around and moved around and purified. And so their estimate is something like uh, the equivalent of taking 14,000 cars off the road as a result of these green infrastructure approaches. So it's wow. it's steps that they're taking um, really motivated by the need to adapt to climate change, but at the same time, they're contributing to this long-term process of preventing future climate change. And I think examples like that are just really hopeful, exciting, and encouraging. And, and systems thinking really helps us sort of look for and capitalize on, on those, those possibilities. And, and then you can also add a third layer, which is uh, another thing we have to do at the same time that we're addressing climate change, of course, is, is just address the gap between the rich and the poor to try and lead to economic development in our cities. And so if you layer on that um, additional aspect of the opportunities for economic development and good jobs in creating and then maintaining this green infrastructure, you start to see a win-win-win kind of situation, which is really exciting. Uh, so the power of systems thinking is to really find these points of synergy where you can connect the short term and the long term and really uh, double down on your progress. It's um, it's such a uh, it, it, there's it's such a broad field, but so important to the future of humanity. And obviously, there's you know hours and hours of things to talk about here. Um, we're 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 coming to the end of our time, and one of the things I try to do in these interviews is talk a little bit. Uh, from the perspective of the social entrepreneur. And I wanted to direct the conversation to something that you wrote, which I find very powerful and, and connected to that uh, personal part of the work, which is what can I do and, and how do I sustain my own um, efforts on big and challenging um, projects like the ones that you're working on. And you've written some really great stuff about the importance of uh, feelings and how um, bringing emotion into m these very um, difficult uh, challenges that sometimes, you know, when we're confronting things as big as climate change, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And um, so you wrote, I'd like to just read something that you wrote uh, and have you react to it and maybe offer some more thoughts. Um, the piece was entitled, Bringing Feelings into the Work of Changing the World. And so here's the quote. You said, my friend Sarah teaches that feelings have a purpose, an ancient biological purpose that allowed our ancestors to survive. Anger tells us to act. Fear tells us to pay attention. <clears throat> Sadness tells us that we have deep needs that are not being met. I find this a helpful way to think. Now, when the latest news report leaves me frightened or angry or grief-stricken, I try to accept the feelings as information calling me to action, keeping me honest, keeping the fact that our current way of doing business on this planet is just not working. Are feelings important uh, in the work and leadership that you do? And can you talk a little bit about that? I think feelings are probably our biggest untapped resource for creating the kind of local and global transformation that we sense is needed. Um, we're really, I believe, being called to a level of action that uh, at least my generation really hasn't experienced yet. You know, it's it's a time of crisis, a time of opportunity, and what 
what's going to fuel that is a question I sometimes ask myself. Um, and I think it is uh, our feelings and our love and the preciousness of our families or, uh, you know, the the spot that we return to every year in the mountains or the lake or the forest that we see changing um, either from development or climate change. And so that urge to protect what's precious to us, um, what we're grateful for, I, I think is, is um, I don't know, almost a limitless resource. You know, we, we feel as change leaders every day, probably the limits of time and the limits of money and the limits of our own personal energy. But when we can tap into our own sense of uh, love and what we care about, and then when we're brave enough to exhibit that in a way that it sort of resonates with other people's sense of love and protectiveness and care, um, that's when I see change igniting and when I see amazing things happening. Um, and I expect to see more and more of it actually over the coming decades because I think the the magnitude of what we're facing is is escalating pretty quickly, and I think it's going to call the best out of us in ways that are probably going to be surprising. Mm, that's a great, I think, note to conclude on connecting the head and the heart in this important work. Um, Beth, if if listeners want to support the work of Climate Interactive, the best way is to go to climateinteractive.org. I know there's also a blog there that. Uh, listeners can follow. Are there other uh, important ways to connect with your work that we should know about? Well, the, the last thing I'd offer, and you're right, all of this can be found at climateinteractive.org, is um, a new training that we're offering called, called The Climate Leader. If you go to theclimateleader.org, you can sign up for information about it. But uh, we've gotten frustrated with our ability to train people individually Individually and in person, there's just so many excellent leaders around the world, particularly working on climate and energy. And we want to empower all of them with these tools of systems thinking that we've been talking about for this last hour. So the Climate Leader is our effort to take all the trainings we've developed over the years and make them available for free online. And um, we'd love to have people take advantage of that. That's great. I signed up for it this morning when I was getting ready for the interview, so I'll awesome. be joining you there. Well, Beth, I want to thank you so much for your inspiring leadership. Uh, it's it's really been a great pleasure to speak with you today, and I and I look forward to uh, having you back on uh, on our podcast uh, to tell more about the work that you're doing in the future. Thanks. That's it's been really interesting. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.